Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Yes, welcome. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And anytime I do anything on my blog about animation, I always get a great response. So today, you are in for a treat because my topic is animation, specifically Disney animation. And even more specifically, those great Disney feature films from the past. Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, etc. My guest is Greg Airbar who has worked for the Disney organization for many years and is a terrific Disney historian. So what I'm going to do is pick his brain about the stories behind the stories. Now, we'll learn all about the gambles that Walt Disney took to get these movies made, the process, all of the advances in animation that were developed along the way, which movies were hits and which weren't, uh, did the animators all become alcoholics, and what was Walt Disney like to work with? Okay, sound like fun, huh? Okay, and along the way, you are also going to learn things that you never knew, including something mind-blowing about the song, When You Wish Upon a Star. I'd play that song now, but oh my God, it's just so syrupy. Anyway, all that and much more when I talk to Greg Airbar this week, and it starts right now. Hollywood and the Vine. Let's go back to the beginning Disney's first full-length animated feature, 1937, Snow White. It was a huge hit, but at the time he made it, he didn't really know that. And I think for the very first premiere, a lot of butterflies that this might be one of the colossal flops of all time. Mostly because the people who knew what they were talking about at the time called it Disney's Folly and said... Nobody is going to sit through a feature-length animated film. It'll hurt their eyes. They actually use, <laughs> yeah, they actually use muted colors. Um, not necessarily for that reason, but if you look at Snow White and Pinocchio, you'll notice the colors are deliberately muted. Um, that's a design choice, but it also could have had something to do with that. But they really didn't think anyone would sit still. Cartoons were considered filler. And one of the reasons Walt Disney wanted to make features is because features were taken seriously. You didn't, it was program filler. And he was right because eventually cartoons would be phased out. It was just something that theaters 
added, people expected, like newsreels. Uh-huh. And he knew that he wasn't going to be in the big leagues unless he did that. And they thought he was nuts that, that to sustain a story for that long. Uh, the other thing that he did that was unusual was in those days, in most musicals, there was a song, but it was like a showpiece. It didn't necessarily have anything to do with the story. But in Snow White, every song has a reason for being there. And the best example of that is the silly song, which seems like a silly song. Right. But what's really going on during that song is they're having this party, but you know at the same time the witch changed into the crone, which is a scene right out of a Universal horror movie. Mm-hmm. So you got kids terrified. You know, meanwhile they're having this happy party. So there's a feeling of tension. You also have to have that happy moment to balance the scary and the sad moments. That's why Officer Kruk, he's in West Side Story, you know, and that kind of stuff. So that was an unusual thing, too. So it was a lot of revolutionary ideas here. So nobody was more surprised than the industry when Snow White became the biggest hit movie in the history of motion pictures until Gone with the Wind in 1939. And also 1939 was the year of The Wizard of Oz. Yes. And that kind of was made in response to yeah. Snow White, correct? Yeah, because the other studios wanted to imitate the formula, if not the uh, medium. Uh, the Paramount did do Gulliver's Travels, which right. was made in Miami by right. Fleischer, who did early Popeye cartoons. Yes, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and um, but most of the studios were going for the fairy tale genre. So you had um, the Bluebird from Fox with Shirley Temple, which is a <laughs> movie. <laughs> Don't remember it. Even Shirley isn't terribly likable uh, in that movie. <laughs> Don't remember it's it. It's a strange, odd movie. And then you've got um, The Wizard of Oz, which was following the basic kind of storytelling and music technique of, of Snow White. That's why it was made. Okay, so then you had Pinocchio. And we all think of Pinocchio as being a huge hit. I mean, it's an iconic movie. But at the time... It really wasn't, was it? Well, it was. It was a um, an extremely, extremely difficult production. It was a very expensive film to make. It's so detailed that you can't. When you watch it, you cannot believe this was done by hand. This was done through research. Years were spent on things like water and waves and bubbles and absolutely every detail. That cost a lot of money. If there was a scene Walt Disney didn't like, it's like. Take the whole scene out. Start over. Well, that all cost money. And what, what happened was uh, they thought they learned everything on Snow White. And it was like, well, what could go wrong? <laughs> and every feature has different challenges. And the, the country also was heading into war. So what Disney found is when it came out in 1940, and there was a blitz of publicity for it because everybody was anticipating no, the next Walt Disney. Sure. And in many ways, some critics said, you know, it was better. Mm-hmm. And there are people who do feel it's the ultimate animated feature because of all that detail. I mean, when you see the, the whale thing, it's like there's mass, there's hugeness, it's terrifying. Um, but the war ch- cut out a lot of um, markets overseas. So that took a huge chunk out of the money they would have made. And so it was a Oh, those poor German kids who couldn't see Pinocchio. Oh, darn. And you know what's funny is that during the war, um, they really couldn't keep Mickey out of Germany, no matter what Adolf Hitler said. You know, Mickey still got in there. You know, underestimate him and all, but he's... Well, they should have just said Mickey was Jewish. (laughs) 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 That might have done it. Okay, so you have Pinocchio. Yeah. 
And that was kind of a disappointment at the at, time. At the time, but and, not anymore. And then he came back with this bizarre movie, Fantasia. And yes. people didn't know what to think of that thing. You could just imagine, you know, you, you, you how far the studio came because only a few years earlier there were little dancing flowers and trees and a happy mouse and his his girlfriend you know and all of a sudden you're going to this film that is truly experimental i mean wildly experimental from any studio much sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band kind (laughs) of and and it's not even a movie to me it's more of an experience you kind of live through it and every time you see it you have a different kind of experience and it's it, the weird thing about it is it has excuse me it has eight segments, and yet those segments fit together somehow. I don't know how. I, uh, here's but, how they fit together. <coughs> I'm kinda... Here's how they fit together. Yeah. If you um, if you smoke a lot of dope, well, <laughs> I think it's very then popular. It, then it'll all Portland, come together. Or, Portland, yeah. Oregon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well the people do say that, but the thing is that. Um, I remember one of the animators being interviewed saying, what drugs were you on? And he said Excedrin and Pepto-Bismol or something like that. Um, Fantasia was was born of a, uh, a get-together with Leopold Stokowski. Leopold. Leopold. Mm-hmm. From Bugs Money. And uh, Walt Disney and the idea of making a short with Mickey as Sorcerer's Apprentice. And then Stokowski said, why stop there? Let's do this whole thing. So they went through all these these pieces of music and said, just do whatever you want to do with them. And they just came up with these ways of interpreting the the pieces. They had often nothing to do. Like Nutcracker Suite is about a nutcracker and a princess and, you know, candy. And this is a ballet of nature. So it, they just totally went in other directions. When that came out, you got to figure, 1940? You know, even 1950 or 60, this is a very strange thing amazing thing and not only that but because of the war because of budgets it was supposed to be played with a special kind of sound called fantasound which they won an oscar for and even today technicians say the basic way they put this thing together was kind of the way all stereophonic things are they they had no idea how to do it and they came up with this thing it was amazing like nine channels but hardly any theaters could show it that way. So you really weren't – yeah. And then they, then it was like edited and shown, you know. It, oh, when they reissued it, I think some, some places called it Fantasia Will Lamasia, which is like, you got to be kidding me. So they didn't quite know what to do with it. The public didn't know what to do with it. And then it did come into its own, for whatever reason, in the late 60s um, and 70s, but also because – experimentation and new kinds of filmmaking were being accepted then it was it's a it's a tired phrase but it was ahead of its time okay now i heard this rumor you can tell me if it's true or not a lot of the animators would go to lunch and they would have a glass of wine and then they would be a little bit looser and then in the afternoon the drawings would get a little bit better and so walt disney said free wine for lunch <laughs> and and as a result like, a lot of these animators became alcoholics. Have you heard that story? It sounds like Brett Summers on Match Game. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard that story? I have never heard that story. I have heard that... And like, you're an expert. <laughs> of course, I, I could what? be making it up, but... I am so faking it. <laughs> um, I haven't heard that. I have heard that, like many artists, there were people with addictions, you know, um, it, it, I mean, there were if you if you really study the the individual artists, there were some people with different kinds of problems. I don't know if that was a direct 
um, result of it. I had never heard that story. What I've heard it's about- It's a good story, though, isn't it? Whew, oh, it's a great story. I'm, I'm going to pass it along. <laughs> no, I like the the, 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 the- the fact of the matter is that Walt Disney was a taskmaster. He was a perfectionist. He was difficult to please. He was- um, he knew what he wanted, and you couldn't come to him with one thing because he'd say, it's really hard to choose from one. So you had to be prepared with a lot of options, and- it was it, what he wasn't always easy, but he also inspired things from people that they didn't know they could do, and that's one of the reasons they stayed. A lot of them just stayed really long because he made people feel, and the work shows it that they were part of something bigger. Visionaries do that. Steve Jobs, same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And and when people would take those artists, they would always say the key can't be Walt Disney. It's got to be that this artist or that artist. And they go to another studio. I mean, the, the, the guy who animated Chernabog and Fantasia and Stromboli and considered one of the greatest animators, if not the greatest, uh, Bill Teitla, he went to work at famous studios in the 40s and animated Bluto and things like that. And it's beautiful animation, but it ain't the same. So sometimes <laughs> when you take them out of that element where they're not being pushed, I've also heard Walter Lance, who made Woody Woodpecker, was one of the nicest guys in animation. And a lot of people went there because it was so nice. But the work was fairly mediocre. Yeah. Bluto is not Bambi, I guess. Um, not, not in any physical way. <laughs> We're talking with Greg Airbar about Disney animation, and we'll be back with more on Hollywood and Levine. I always feel bad when I re-gift wine. You know, somebody will bring a bottle of wine when we're having a dinner party and, uh, you know, it sits on the shelf and eventually you're going to go to somebody else's house for a dinner party and you grab it. But you don't know. Is this good wine? Is this bad wine? Is this a $4 bottle of wine that you're bringing somebody? And that's another reason why I am a subscriber to Wink. Wink, W-I-N-C, is a wine club where they send the wine right to your home. And the wine is $13 a bottle, and it's really, really good. In fact, they will personalize it for you. You basically tell them your tastes, and they will send you wine. And it's 100% guarantee. You don't like something, you just send it right back. But it's great. And I have now a stash of wine, and I know I've got some really cool $13 bottles of wine ready to go when I have to go to a party and have to, uh, you know, give a gift. So I want to introduce you to wink.com, and I'm going to do that with a special introductory offer. You can get $22 off of your first order, and if you order four bottles or more, you get free shipping. Here's what you do. You go online and you go to wink.com slash Hollywood. Once again, wink is W-I-N-C. So wink.com slash Hollywood and get $22 off your first order now. And you can feel confident when you go over to somebody's house for a nice meal that you're not bringing them some bottle of two-buck chuck. Wink.com. Hollywood and Levine. And we're back. So the 40s are done. The war is done. We move into the 50s. And the first big movie that Disney made was Cinderella. Yeah. But that was after 
a number of years, and he had already made Bambi, which kind of went, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess there was a lot of pressure on Cinderella because he really hadn't had a, a giant hit since Snow White. Well, yeah, because the the war had, had a severe impact on those things. And the films that were made in the 40s were generally uh, compilations of shorter films. Uh, so when they, they had not done a feature between 1942 and 50. So, and... I got to point out too that things like Bambi and Pinocchio were later successful because they'd reissued. Sure, yeah, so they become highly successful. But they didn't know it at the not time. Not at the time, no. Well, Cinderella was almost a make or break thing, just like Snow White was. The studio was riding on Snow White. The entire studio on Buena Vista Street in Burbank is there because of Snow White. That's the money was spent on. So Cinderella had to revive Disney's animation, and had it not been successful. Or if Alice in Wonderland was the first thing they did in 1950, Disney as we know it might not be the same. Because it was a flop. Alice was not successful in 51. That came next. Why was Cinderella so successful? Well, Cinderella, first of all, it's got a story everybody knows, but also Disney has a real gift when they do it right for coming up with a way of pulling you in emotionally, having engaging characters that also mirror what you're supposed to be thinking, like Jiminy Cricket, like the mice in Cinderella. Great musical scores that under really underpin the emotions. And the amazing thing about Cinderella is, first of all, as the princesses go of that era, one of the most engaging personalities, one of the most approachable kind of princesses, who really works hard to get what she got. You almost get the feeling that she would have accomplished something even mm-hmm. without the magic. She's not a Kardashian. No. 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 The sisters? Yeah. You know, maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> but the but the 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 character of Cinderella is very engaging and the amazing thing about Cinderella if you watch it is you do doubt it's going to end happy even though you know even if you watch it. You know, you, because there's those stairs and the mice have to get the key up the stairs and it's so, oh my gosh, will they do it? Of course they're going to... Oh no, it's the cat. You know, how do they play with your head? So best like Hitchcock does. Oh man, we should say spoiler alert here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Sorry. Oh, and, and Norman Bates is really... <laughs> <laughs> now they did an interesting thing on Cinderella. They did something similar on Snow White too. But they actually filmed live action version of it so that the animators had something to draw to. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. They, live action footage is still used uh, often as reference for animation. Um, it is not usually used as a crutch or as a tracing. That's called rotoscoping. Mm-hmm. And to see examples of that, Snow White and the Prince, uh, the Blue Fairy and Pinocchio, um, Ralph Bakshi's uh, Lord of the Rings was entirely rotoscoped, Gulliver and Gulliver's Travels. And you can tell that they're, they're rotoscoped. Um, Don Bluth did it in Anastasia, the characters. They look so human. Mm-hmm. The thing is, there's a, there's a kind of a watery feeling to them. You can kind of tell. Plus, it's like, why do the animated version? <laughs> well, that, and that's a good question. Well, at the time of Snow White, they didn't know how to do it well enough. Best example is, go back to a silly symphony called Goddess of Spring, and look at how the goddess moves, especially at the beginning. It's laughable. They didn't know yet. It, they were still learning. There were classes going on while the films were being made. I mean, so they, they could make fast. rabbits and uh, things like that and mice. Uh, the dwarfs, you know, really with people of... with three fingers and stuff. But right. uh, yeah, it's real people, hard. no. It's very hard to do human characters. It's also harder to do the prince than the princess. The princes, if you'll notice, in the early films 
didn't have a whole lot going on because they were difficult to to animate. And even Prince Philip in Sleeping Beauty, he was extremely difficult. He has a little bit more to do, but it's very, very difficult to do humans. So what they would do is, and and animals too, because that's one of the reasons Bambi was so difficult and expensive, to really make real life look real, but not just a copy of reality. That's the hard part. So with, with the rotoscoping, okay, they did that occasionally, but most of the time it was almost like an artist has a painting and they have a model and they're looking at the model, but they're not holding up a piece of, of tracing paper and tracing you know, her form. Right. They're looking at it to see where the, where the folds in the clothing goes, where the arm is, when they turn this way. They actually build maquettes. They build little sculptures of all the characters too so that they can turn them. They have a sculptor build a sculpture of per- in Pinocchio. They built the toys that you see in Geppetto's workshop. Everything was there that existed, so they could turn them around. Corella Deville's car was actually a built car that they moved around, and then they they did draw on so that that car looked, and it looks like CG now, but it was hand drawn from the model of a car. So it isn't so much their tracing, it's that you do have to know how long does it take the elbow to go one way or another. When I was in in high school, I did an animated thing with paper cutouts. I still had a friend of mine do the motions because I wanted to count how many frames it took. And even though it was crude, it still moved better. I did the same thing, and the model said to me, why do I have to be nude? (laughs) (laughs) In front of this tractor. So, So... So then you have Lady and the Tramp, and you have Alice in Wonderland, and you have Peter Peter Pan, Pan, and uh, Sleeping Beauty from the late 50s, which if you look at that movie, especially on a big screen, is just gorgeous. I mean, the backgrounds, I mean, they're beautifully designed, and I guess that was a movie that Disney figured was going to be his masterpiece, yeah. but it kind of fell short. How come? For several reasons. One is that while, and again, now it's way up there with the great classics, but at the time you had television competing, um, so they had to have widescreen. You had Walt Disney's attention being distracted by Disneyland and um, by television, and all the company was getting bigger. And uh, so that's why it took six years to make. It was really expensive because that minute, minute detail is expensive. And by the 1950s, it was really expensive. So there, it was very, very ambitious. And the, the, the end result just wasn't what people were expecting. There were no cute little mice to identify with. Yeah, I need um, my mice. I, you got to have your mice. I got to have, have my have mice. Cricket, you know, uh-huh. you know they, they didn't, there were certain things of the story and of the characters they just didn't get on. The score was very Tchaikovsky, so you didn't have, you, you had pl- good songs, but you didn't have catchy sort of almost jingles that you had in some of the earlier films. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it is a great work of art. It's just that in 1959, it just wasn't what people were going for. And the problem was, that they needed money for Disneyland really bad. Um, the the record company, which started in 56, almost was shut down too because Walt needed money for Disneyland, which was very expensive, and all these other projects. Animation, once again, like it was with Snow White, like it was with Cinderella, animation was almost going away. You know, should we still even do it? That happens every few years. But then the big turning point was... 101 Dalmatians, when they came up with a different, cheaper technique in order to make the film. Talk about that a little. Yeah, the the conundrum of of cheap or budget 
is it, when you com- when you're limited on budget, if you do something clever to get around it, then you got something. And what they did with 101 Dalmatians is they found a way to eliminate hand inking of, of the animation cells. So the animator draws with a pencil and then it's put into this Xerox device and the drawing comes out on a clear cell. So there's nobody having to do it by hand. What that does on the positive end is the exact drawing that was cleaned up as an animation drawing has the total spontaneity. It hasn't gone through a slickening process. So you get a different kind of motion. And when you see how Corella DeVille moves, and it's, it's incredible just watching her. Um, and, and so it, it gave animation something it never had before. But... It also had a sort of a scritchy line to it. It had a roughness to it. And in 101 Dalmatians especially, they made the background Xerox too so that they could match the characters. But it worked. It was a contemporary film. It had this sort of cool um, sarcasm to it. You it was know, a cool story, it, it actually. It made fun of TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It made fun of advertising. Mm-hmm. It had an attitude no Disney film had. And Walt didn't like the look at first. He really didn't. And even my, my even my brother and I used to call it, oh, it's one of those scritchy line kind of things. I don't know. But he warmed to it. He liked it. And from then on, through the rest of his life, they were using it. They used it in Mary Poppins and Sword in the Stone and, and in Jungle Book. And what you do see with that is you do see a, a, a style that um, is, is very, very, very different and kind of loose and fun. The same thing as when you see Baloo being animated and there it does not it doesn't even look like what's being done now because of that process okay and final question i want to talk a little bit about the music because uh you told me earlier something that was kind of astounding i did yes you did you told me that uh the disney organization sold off the rights to a lot of their songs and the famous song when you wish upon a star which they use all the time. It's like their signature song. They have to pay somebody. They have to pay. Every time they use that song, right? Yeah, yeah. See, when the studio was starting and it was growing, there were parts of having an entertainment company that Walt and Roy didn't handle. Um, They didn't publish their own books. They didn't have a record company until 1956. And they didn't have a music publishing company until like 1945, 46. Before that... They would go to other firms and figure, well, they know what they're doing and they know how to do it. With Three Little Pigs, you had Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, which was an anthem for the Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a huge, and huge... And now. Yeah, and that's... Um, yeah. Oh, gosh, it is. <laughs> so scary. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm getting dizzy. Um, there's a, there's a um, company called Born. That still exists, Born Incorporated. Originally, that was Saul Born and Irving Berlin. They were partners. They they owned every song from Silly Symphonies all the way up through Dumbo, and they they uh, became Born separated from Berlin. So Irving Berlin Music suddenly it was just his songs, and Saul Born's company had every other song that was in the library, including all of those Disney songs. Right, and When You Wish Upon a Star is from Pinocchio. When You Wish Upon a Star, uh, Whistle While You Work, um, all of those songs. Zippity-Doo-Dah? No, Zippity-Doo-Dah was owned by, I think it was Ann Rachel Music, and uh, Bambi was also owned by another company. What about Goddamn the Pusher Man? Which uh, Disney movie was that from? (laughs) Oh, that was the one with Dean Jones and... uh... Yeah, that was... (laughs) 
was the love bug. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Love bug 52. <laughs> so they, uh, you know, they should have done a love bug 53 since that was his number. Oh, there were so they came, many they came so unanswered close. questions. It's, yes. <laughs> that's true. Um, they, 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 um, they own these songs and Roy Disney, Roy, Roy uh, O. Disney, Walt's brother, who was the business guy for years worked on getting the rights back to the songs because they could publish it by that time. So he did get the rights to the Bambi songs and to zippity doo Dah and the Song of the South songs and pretty much everything that was in the 40s catalog, but they, the Bourne Company would not give up the, those. So to this day, the company doesn't own them. Wow. Some great stuff. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. Greg, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Again, I thought about playing When You Wish Upon a Star, and I just listened to it and went, oh, God, no, no, it's just way too gooey. You know how it sounds. All right. Anyway, thanks to Greg Airbar for his uh, expertise on Disney animation. That'll do it for this week. Our thanks also to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. If you have any questions or concerns or any comments, you can always write me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, my email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine or on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Please subscribe. Please give this a five-star review. Okay, I got all the particulars out of the way. Again, thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you again next week. (laughs) Bye-bye.